Good evening. Good evening. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, well, happy November. Um, go Braves, like Kevin said. Um, I think I watched a total of six innings this entire postseason. I know it's maybe blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm not a big baseball guy. Um, also, I'm going to move this over a little bit. This light is like right in my eyes. Here we go. That helps a little bit. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and invite you guys to take out your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 4. Um, with it also being November, it's also of No Save November, so all you guys out there, let's go ahead and start this journey. I'm on my second day, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, this is coming off tomorrow because my fiance kind of hates it. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we're going to be in John chapter 4 for tonight. <laughs> Um, and uh, um, before I kind of get started, to kind of already give credit where credit is due from where I kind of gathered my sources, um, and, and they are Dane Ortland. He wrote Gentle and Lowly, and tonight, as you can see, we're talking about gentleness, um, and so thought he was a good source. Uh, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Goodwin, and Blake Anderson. He's a pastor in Texas. Um, but before we dive in, um, I just want to go ahead and, and reread um, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Um, because the, the past couple of weeks, this is where we've been, right? We, we've been learning about how do we do the fruit of the Spirit, right? Um, notice it's, it's, it's fruit, so they all come together. So how, how do we do these things? And it's, it's by looking at Christ, right? Like the Holy Spirit brings these out of us. He empowers us to look more like Christ. And so when we look more like Christ, all these things come up. So again, Galatians chapter 5, verses 23, or 22 through 23, it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so the past um, couple of weeks, we've been walking in these things. I taught on peace about a month ago. Apparently, it didn't go so bad to where I got re-invited. So we're going to try and stick with that theme tonight and not go off the rocker. Um, but the past two weeks, Kevin and Riley taught on um, goodness and gentleness. Um, Riley with goodness and Kevin... Uh, or, sorry, Riley with goodness, Kevin with kindness. Um, and um, I'm not going to lie, like this, this one, this sermon that I kind of prepared tonight was a lot harder than the one I did a month ago um, on peace. Uh, mainly on peace, like I said, there was so much you could talk about, right? Like, oh my gosh, like there's all these hundreds of Bible references about what peace is and how Jesus brings it to us and, and how he fulfills peace. Um, it's, the question was like where to stop, but but for this one, I was like, Man, okay, so, so Riley taught on goodness, Kevin taught on kindness, and I'm supposed to teach on gentleness. How am I supposed to differentiate from these things, right? Like, I don't want to, like, it's good to also be retaught things, but, but specifically, Scripture calls us to do each one. And when, when I was looking through this book called A Concordance, where it kind of, like, references, like, it points out to where, our, like, say goodness is, like, wherever it's referenced, it says all the, all the Bible verses, right? And I noticed there was overlap between versions between kindness, goodness, and gentleness, um, so I just want to like recall what, what Riley and Kevin talked about and if you haven't heard these I encourage you all to go back and listen so Riley taught on goodness and the main takeaway that, that Riley gave us was goodness was the will of God right God is good and God does his will so therefore God can only do good so how do we know we are good when we are in the will of God and how do we know when we're in the will of God by obeying what scripture says and abiding by it right 
Scripture is our ultimate authority, and so, so we are to be good. And so what Riley like, kind of showed us was goodness was a state of like, kind of being. Like, we are supposed to be in the will of God. Like, when, when Scripture calls us to be in, like, have integrity, like, we're not supposed to cheat on other people's tests or anything, right? So it's not in relation to anything else. We're supposed to be good. We're supposed to, to be in the will of God. And so Kevin also talked about kindness, about how it was the intentionality of what God gave us that we did not deserve and what we actually ultimately truly wanted, right? Kevin talked about Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where, where he says, So whatever you wish what, that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Right? Like This is kindness, the intentionality of knowing what people want and then giving it to them. Like ultimately, what we want above all is to live forever. But obviously, our views are so skewed, and yet God does do that to us. By 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? He is kind and, and, and slowly trying to reveal that to us, and he's kind to all people. So again, goodness is a state. Kindness is something that's intentional that God does. So then what the heck is gentleness? <laughs> and so gentleness is the tone by which God reaches all people. Goodness is a state. Kindness is an intentional act towards all people. And then gentleness is the tone by which we receive these things. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Again, some of your, some of your ver- like versions in Proverbs 51 might say a soft or kind answer. But the point of it is that the, the, what, the, what we are saying doesn't change, but how we do it does, right? How we are to deliver these things does. For example, I love Reese's Minis above all things, right? If you guys were to give me a Reese's Minis, that is, that is kind. Like, thank you, right? But if you guys were to throw those things at me, that is still kind but not gentle, right? I, I would just get Reese's all over the place. Like, that's not kind. That's, that's kind of harsh. Like, you're throwing stuff at me. But still kind by actually giving it to me, but not the way in which you're doing it. And so again, so we're going we're gonna to talk tonight and from John chapter 4 about the tone by which Jesus approaches us so that through gentleness we might see all the deep things of God, right? It's through gentleness that we can see God's kindness. It's through gentleness that we can see his goodness and his love and his faithfulness and his peace, right? And not only is it what he does, it's who he is. Matthew chapter 11 verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. We read that earlier, right? So not only is it what Jesus does and how the tone by which he comes to us, but it's also who he is. Um, so again, goodness is the state. Kindness is the intentional act of giving what, what we ultimately want, but we don't deserve. And gentleness is the tone by which we are to receive all of these things, right? So again, our, our, our passage tonight is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 29. Um, last time I only did one verse, this time I'm doing 29, so I'm trying to even out my balance here. Um, <laughs> so, so stick with me. So if you guys want to open up your, your word uh, or your copy of God's word, um, we're going to read through all of this. Um, yeah, yeah. So John chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Hold on to that. We're, we're going to come back to that verse in particular. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
and it was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. Big, big point we're going to come back to you also. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as it is sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will soon will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship him on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and am he. Just then as the disciples got back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me that all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and and were coming to him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we get to submit to something other than ourselves, that we don't have to provide all the answers, but Lord, your word does. So Lord, as we just unpack what the story means, how this just shows, Lord, not only how you're general, but, but Lord, this shows who you are. Lord, help us to see that we are like the Samaritan woman. Lord, help us to see that we are sinners. So, Lord, would you help give me just the the power of your spirit and the words of your spirit to speak and to unpack these truths. Lord, you are faithful and good. Help us to walk in here more in love with you than when we walked out. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Um, So, for tonight, I only have two points tonight. I also have a slideshow. Again, engineer. Um... And the, and the two points of the story is, one, what is the story? So I'm literally just going to walk through what the story says, a little commentary kind of thing. And the second is the application for us. Um, and so the first point is the story. And so I, um, I think it is best to kind of just unpack, like, man, what, what is Scripture really, like, saying about this? And, and there's a lot of things in, like, the first six verses that if you're not aware of them, like, you can miss them. And, and they're kind of pretty big details. And so I, when I was just like kind of looking at this, I'm like, man, I, I, I've never preached from 29 verses before. I, I don't really know how this all chunks up evenly, so I'm just going to just kind of run with it. Um, so 
first point is the story, and, and specifically, the first six verses are the setting, which is where we're going to spend a lot of time um, tonight. Um, and so in, in, in the first uh, three verses, it says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not baptize, but all, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we see that Jesus is on a journey. He is going from Judea to Galilee, right? We see that he is going somewhere because he is running kind of from the Pharisees because they're hearing that he's doing this ministry. And in verse 4, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to, right? Verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. And so if you're reading this as like the first century, like as a first century Jew, you're like, you're, man, you're, your alarm's going off. You're like, what? what? He had to pass through Samaria? Like, why? Why did he have to pass through Samaria? And you're thinking, like, well, if you're a first century Jew, like, why, like, why does that matter? Well, for one, the Gentiles and Samaritans had humongous beef. Um, think, I don't know, Alabama and Auburn times a thousand. Um, like, they, they genuinely hated each other, and specifically the Jews hating the, Gen- or the, Jews hating the Samaritans. Um, and the reason for that is, is threefold. There's three reasons. Um, the first being was the Jews thought the Samaritans were unclean, right? Think, think leprosy in, in the New Testament. Like they don't want to eat with them. They don't want to pray with them. Because back in the Old Testament, when the Syrians came in, they, they displaced the Jews that were in that area and then brought in Gentiles, people not Jews. And the Jews that were remaining there mated and had children with the, the Gentiles that were bought in. So, so there was a mix, right? Think, think Slytherin and, like, I don't know, Harry Potter. You know, like, they don't, so they don't mix, right? There's, there's true blood, the Jews, and then and Samaritans, like, the half-bloods, right? And so this, the Jews thought that, the, like, the Samaritans were unclean. They didn't want to be around them. They're like, no, we, we can't be with them. Like, they're, they're unclean. They're like leprosy, right? And the, and the second reason why the Jews hated the Gentiles was because they thought they were heretics, Right? So the Samaritans, knowing, like, the Jews hated them, and then when they read Scripture, like, they, they only took the five books of the Bible, the first five books, right? And so Joshua on, they left. Well, why? Well, it was only about the Jews. And they're like, well, we don't want that because it's not about us. And so they actually kind of distorted some of the old Bible passages to where the mountain that was referenced was not the mountain in Jerusalem, but the mountain called Jerezim in Samaria, Right? Because back then, you had to go and worship God. So, so they were saying, like, we have a claim on God. You worship from our mountain, not, not your mountain, right? And so the Jews were like, no, like, like we have God. Like, God is, like, we are God's chosen people. So they thought that the Samaritans were heretics, right? Thinking that they had a monopoly on God, thinking that their scripture was right, when in reality, like, no, like, like God was faithful to us. We are his chosen people. And the third and last reason, and probably the biggest one, was that the Samaritans lived on the land that the Jews thought belonged to them. Um, so if you go ahead and throw up this picture real quick, I, I found this little map on Google. Uh, I think it's like the next slide, yeah. Um, so, so literally Samaria is right in between Judea and Galilee. And so the Samaritans thought that, like, this is our land, and the Jews thought, no, this is our land. And the Jews were probably right, <laughs> just looking at the picture. Um, and, and they are right. And so, and so there was this big battle going on between them. They literally fought wars over this, but, like, whose land this was. And so when we read, like, Jesus had to go through Samaria, because a Jew, you don't go that way. And I don't know if you guys can see it, but on the dotted, there's a little dotted line from that black dot Ephraim that goes literally around Samaria. 
that was the route that you normally took when you were a Jew. You avoided Samaria like the plague. Right? You're like, I'm not going to Samaria. But Jesus, again, verse 4, had to go to Samaria. He went straight through, right? And so, again, like, the question asked, like, why did Jesus take this route? Well, one, yes, he's God, and that is the most direct route, so he is geographically aware. But, but it's most importantly God's will, right? And when we saw from Riley's talk, like, that is his goodness, right? Being in God's will. So we see that, that, that God's goodness is on display by Jesus going into Samaria. Wow, okay. So again, so this is kind of the setting that if when you read through this, like, Jesus had to go through Samaria, like, you're, you're thinking, like, why is this important? Well, this is why it's important. Because the Jews and Samaritans hated each other, specifically for those three reasons. So when you go down to verse 6, it says, So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey and was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. Again, might not seem like a very important verse. Because um, you're like, Carrie, it's the sixth hour. It's six o'clock in the morning. Why is that important? And to you, I'd say, you're wrong. Because it's not six o'clock in the morning. Um, and and back, in, back in those times, they would measure the, the sun based on when they measure time based on when the sun rose. So the beginning of the day was typically six. So that was the zero hour. So at the six hour, if we can do math because we're all in college, zero is at 6 a.m. because that's when the sun rose typically. I'd put it at 12 noon. So we see that at 12 at noon, Jesus was at the well. And, and why is that important? Because at noon was when it typically is the hottest. You can go ask Riley. Um, it, well, maybe not right now. His voice is gone. But it's hot in the Middle East. Right? It is scorching. That's actually how Riley lost his voice. He's feeling the side effects of it from a couple of months later. Um, but it is, it is hot there. And so at noon is when it's at hottest. And so we see that Jesus is at the well, out of Tottis, in the literally enemy's territory. Right? And so this is kind of the setting that, that when you read Scripture and you don't really take time to understand like, the context of it and notice like, the hads and notice the time and the place, we miss these things. And so um, after this, we kind of get into our, like, our next kind of, I guess, the main part of it, which is essentially the conversation. Um, Evan, if you want to hit the next one. Um, is, is this kind of like a, the second point of the story, is this, is this conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman. And this is a very long conversation, so I'm only going to highlight, I'm going to highlight all of it, but I'm not going to go into as much depth as you guys probably would like. Um, Okay, so, so knowing that, that, that Jesus had to go through Samaria because God is good, right? And, and knowing why Jesus is, 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 is kind of going there and also knowing the setting of it, we read in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So during the hottest part of the day, a woman comes to draw water. Now, why is that important? I'm glad you asked. Um, the reason why this is important it's because at the hottest part of the day, you're probably not going out to a water well, right? Like, especially if, if your day started at 6, why would you go in the middle of the day to go get some water? You're probably thirsty because you have no more water. But yet you're going at the hottest point to get more water. Why don't you do it earlier? Well, as we see as the story unfolds, it's because we see that she was ashamed. She had to go then because no one else would. She wanted to go by herself, right? We see that Jesus was there at the sixth hour, the hottest point, and, and the only person that's mentioned is a woman, meaning that she was probably used to going to this well by herself because she was ashamed of her past, which we'll get into in a second, right? 
She was embarrassed. She was mortified. She was ostracized from her city. And so imagine her surprise when later in that same verse, Jesus says, give me a drink. (laughs) Right? Like, give me a drink. What? Jesus is here, and there's this woman who thinks that, you know, I'm going to go here and not see anyone, and yet here's this man sitting at the well, and he tells her to give me a drink. And you might be saying to yourself, like, here, that's not very gentle. And maybe, you're, maybe you might be thinking that, and you might be right for right now, but when we read the Samaritan woman's response, we're going to see how much this impacted her, right? And, and she says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? Right? We just saw how Jews and Samaritans were at war. And, and she's there by herself. And then how is it that, that Jesus asks her for a drink? So just her even, him even engaging with a Samaritan woman is an act of kindness. Right? Her, him even act, like asking is like already a social taboo. So we see God's goodness going in, him entering into conversation as his kindness. And then as, as the Samaritan woman's processing this and saying, like, man, there's a man at this well. There is a man that's engaging to talk to me. Jesus answers her, answers her question. Keep that in mind. That's going to be a common theme. Verse in Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that I was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. So clearly we know what this means, right? Clearly we know that the living water that Jesus is offering is himself, eternal salvation. Right, that we can now be in relationship with him. Us that were once sinners can now be in relationship. But what we're going to see in her responses is, is that if you don't know the end of the story, you might think she understands what Jesus is saying. But if you look at verse 26, a little ahead, she actually says, could this be the Messiah? So keep that in mind. She does not really know during this if he is going to be the Messiah. And so as she responds and as Jesus talks, we're going to see her eyes open to the glory of Christ like an onion being peeled layer by layer, right? There are going to be barriers broken by Jesus. And how he does this is the gentleness of who he is. So again, so Jesus asked her, like, if you knew who you were talking to, you would get living water. And so verse 11, this is how the woman responds. And this is how we're going to kind of start seeing the initial barriers up front. Verse 11, the woman said to, her, said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his sons and his livestock. So the woman knows just enough to be dangerous, <laughs> like many of us, especially me. I know just enough to get myself into trouble. And so when she says, like, like Sir, like you don't literally have a bucket to get water, the well is deep. Like, like how are you going to get this living water? Right? You're, you're offering me something that you have no ability to give. And she also has enough sense to know who Jacob is, right? Because they remember the Samaritans have the first five books of the Bible. So she's looking back on Jacob because that's Jacob's well. And she's saying, like, are you greater than Jacob? So she's essentially questioning Jesus' first initial offering, right? Of like, how, how in the world can you offer me this living water? You don't have a bucket. And you're certainly not greater than Jacob, who did have to drink. And I hope you guys see ourselves in that, because we oftentimes think that we know 
we know enough about Jesus to where, like, when someone says something that is truthful, that might be a, a slight rebuke of us, of, 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 like, maybe us walking in sin or sin that we're blind to. Like, no, like, I know who Jesus is. Like, I know that. So why are you telling me this? And this is what the woman's kind of saying, too, right? Here's literally the Savior offering her eternal salvation and her saying, like, you don't have any way of providing that. You're not greater than Jacob. You don't have a bucket. What's this living water? In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of all that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So again, we see Jesus again offering salvation, right? He answers the question by saying, like, where's the bucket? I'm the bucket. I'm, I'm providing it. Am I greater than Jacob? Yes, I am, right? But again, the woman's response is, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water in verse 15. So, so what in the world could this possibly mean, right? Like, so I, I just told you in, later in the story that the woman doesn't recognize Jesus as being the Messiah. And here in verse 12, she's questioning, you know, about how Jesus is going to give her this water that doesn't, you know, doesn't cause her to thirst. And then in verse 15, it says that she now wants the water. So she doesn't recognize that, that he's the Messiah. So, so what in the world could she be saying yes to? Well, think again about why she's there. She's a saint. She's looking for security from something, and she's willing to latch on to anything, right? She's willing to latch on to have any security, have any comfort, right? That's why she's saying, yes, I don't want to come back out here by myself. I don't want to come out in the middle of the day and have people constantly be reminded of who I am. And she's trying to, like, kind of hide that from Jesus, right? Like, still to this point, like, she doesn't think this man knows who she is. She's like, yeah, I'll take that water. I don't want you to know about my past. <laughs> and that's why the timing of this is so, this is why the gentleness of Christ is so great and why he is worthy of all praise. Verse 16, and Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Right? Her greatest fear is now being peeled back. Right? Her greatest fear of like, oh my gosh, like, she, he surely doesn't know. And so the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Verse 18, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not even your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman latching on to anything that she can get security in, like think about that, five husbands. Five men that she was looking for security from. And we don't know what happened to those five marriages, but each one failed, whether that was her not being faithful or them leaving. But either one ended it with her in heartbreak and looking for more. That's why she's now with the sixth man and not even married to him. Right? And so Jesus just peeled back her deepest sin, her, her, the core of her identity, looking for security. And I just can't help but be reminded of the same God in Exodus 33, verse 20. Right? If you guys can flip there real quick, do, but if you can't, just write it down. That's fine. Exodus 33, verse 20. This is God talking to Moses. He said, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The same God that, that has peeled back her sin and is now with her is the same God in the Old Testament that could not be seen. Right? The same glorious God that was so holy that if you were to look on him, you would die. What? How is that possible? What's well, Jesus? 
God made himself man so that we might now be able to commune with him and be in a relationship with him. And so you might think, oh, if a God is that glorious and that holy, man, like, shouldn't, shouldn't we, like, also be afraid of him? Shouldn't we also not want to go to him? And the answer is no. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan in the 1700s, says it like this. When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn towards us. Right? And when we see that, like, we, we see that by when, when she says she has a husband and Jesus now tells her of her own sin. Just read the next, this, this next exchange. But the woman said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So, so the woman's sin just got peeled back, right? And Jesus sees it, and he, and he is there. And, and now that the woman is fully exposed for who she is, she's essentially asking, Man, like, like, how do I now worship, right? Because, again, if you remember back to how the, the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans, they thought the Samaritans were heretics. They thought that you worshiped on their mountain and not the Jews' mountain. So when she's saying, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you're out to worship, she's essentially asking, like, where, well, how do I now worship? Right, like, like, I, I, I want to worship God because of what you have shown me. I want to worship God for for. for like the sin that you have shown me. Like, I need to go repent. Like, I need to go, go to God and, and say, like, help me make, make me clean. Like, I, I need to go. <laughs> like, I need to go be better. Like, I need to go be religious. And in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when either on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him most worship in spirit and truth. So we see that God is calling worshipers to himself that will worship in spirit and truth. And that's how he responds to the woman. So like, it doesn't matter what mountain you're going to. It's, it matters now in spirit and truth. And so you might ask, well, like, what, what is the spirit and truth that, that you're talking about, Carrie? We just saw that the woman's sin get pulled back. We just, just saw her now like want to go and, and, and essentially be good. And Jesus answers, no, that is not it. The answer is spirit and truth. And in what spirit and truth? The truth that you are loved and the spirit that we are broken. Right? Because again, when we say, when, when we are asking to be filled with, with the Spirit, and to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we're recognizing that we don't have that. We want the Holy Spirit to fill us. We are saying that we are broken because we aren't good. And the truth that God loves us is how we are now impacted by the gospel, right? That there is no sin that that will separate us. There is nothing that, that God will not do to, to have us in relationship with him. So again, what is the, the truth and the spirit, the truth that we are loved and the spirit that we are broken? Those are the two qualifications that Jesus is asking for himself. That's how he responds to, to a, a sinner having the depth of her sin revealed to a holy, infinite God. Is saying, you just have to be loved and be broken. You don't have to go to a mountain. You don't have to be good. 
We have to be loved and be broken. Listen to these words in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-10. through 10. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved, but that God, he, but that loved, first in, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to the propitiation of our sin. So what is the truth? That God loves us, and he is loved, and we are the object of that, and the spirit that we are broken and that yet the Spirit of Christ is making us whole once again. So then at this point, <laughs> right? At this point where, where we're in the story where, man, Jesus has again pulled back her sin. He answers by, by telling her, man, you just have to be loved and be broken to worship me. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to be religious and, and do these things. It's at this point in the story in verse 25 where, where she's starting to realize that something's different. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I am he. I who speak to you am he. So the thing about where we started, right? Where we started was a woman wondering how, why a man would even speak to her, specifically a Jew. And we end with her realizing that the Messiah might be coming. And the way this happens is not by, yes, by Jesus saying some things, but it's also by the woman asking questions. Again, when, when, we, read, when we read Matthew 11 about God's heart, he said that he was gentle and lowly. And so for God to reveal himself to her, it was mainly through her asking questions. It was mainly through God lowering himself, not saying, I am the God, I am the Messiah, but him actually receiving the questions from her, right? Like, go back and read, right? Like, like how are you going to draw this water? Are you greater than Jacob, right? And she's, then she asks, like, how do I worship? Like, like, like all these questions she's asking, and yet Jesus is answering each one because he listens. He listens. Hmm. So that kind of concludes the, the conversation of, of her hearing that Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah. And then this leads into the last kind of section of the story in the third point. Um, in verses 27 through 29, it's the wonder that everyone is left with. In verse, in the third point. Um, verse 27, just when his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So by this conversation, <laughs> by this conversation, everyone is left asking questions except for one person, and that's Jesus. Right? When the, when the disciples got back, they, they were marveling that he was with a Samaritan woman. And clearly they knew something was up with her because they didn't ask her, what do you seek? Or, and then asked Jesus, like, why are you talking with her? But they knew something was up and that something was happening. And they were, 
there was like I guess awestruck. Like I would be, you know, like, oh my gosh, like why are you talking to this woman? Then it says like the woman then left her jar and and then went into town and said, Come see a man who told all I ever did. And this woman is left with the impression that this man might be the Messiah. She is so convinced that she just went back to the people that she was ashamed of, the reason why she was going at noon to get water, to be able to just say, I think, I think this might be the Messiah. So when we are gentle, we're also, we also cause wonder in the people around us, right? We cause people to, to wonder, and how, how is he doing this? I think that's the reason why the conversation ended when it did with, with Christ revealing who he is, revealing that the only two rec- like requirements we need is to, to be broken and to be loved. And then for the, all the people that are mentioned next are all asking questions, <laughs> right? And so just to kind of recap this story, man, I, I hope you guys see Jesus' heart in this. I hope you guys also see the Samaritan woman in this as us. Because I said that the Jews hated the Gentiles, or the Jews hated the Samaritans. I keep on saying Gentiles. Jews hated the Samaritans. And Jesus was a Jew. So he kind of, and, and the Jews were right. So he kind of had a right in hating Samaritans. Right? And again, what were the three things I said about Samaritans? that they were unclean, they were heretics, they thought the land that they owned was theirs but really wasn't. Doesn't that sound a lot like us? We are unclean. We have sinned and fallen out of the glory of God and the holiness of God. We are heretics. We think we have a right view of God, but most of the time we really don't. And we think this life is ours to live, but it really isn't. And also, not only that, the Samaritan woman has deep personal heart identity issues. How often do we put our identity and security in so many other things? The Samaritan woman put it in man and, and in sexual desire. But what is it for us? Hmm. Hope you guys don't miss that. And again, even in the, 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 the sinful heart of who the Samaritan woman was, that is when the gentleness and love of God was on full display. So that leads into our second point, the application of the story. And so this, this application can be ultimately summed up in this one sentence. Because Jesus is gentle with me, I can be gentle to all. Hmm. And so again, how is Jesus gentle to the Samaritan woman? It's actually by what he didn't say and when he said it. When he was talking to the Samaritan woman, yes, he started it, but he also listened to each one of her problems. He said truth, but he also said truth in a way that she knew him. To be gentle is to listen. To be gentle is to know who you're listening to so that the truth of the gospel, when you speak it, again, gentleness is the door to where we see the great things of God. 
So when we listen and we know who we're ministering to, like Jesus did, we can have truth impacted that goes to the core. And it is gentle. Because again, when we know someone, we know what makes them tick. And again, the, the response that Jesus gave the woman caused her to ask more questions and be drawn to his holiness. It wasn't when he answered that she was pushed away. Because Jesus could have answered in that way. But he answered in a way that would draw him to himself. So when we listen we understand and we know so that we might answer in truth that people might see the heart of Jesus. Again, Matthew 11, gentle and lowly. And so from this, I kind of have like a little sub point I didn't really put up there, but this little sub point is, is when Jesus is, is gentle to us is that it makes us great, <laughs> right? And, and then I'm going to show how in these next couple of verses. But it says, because Jesus is gentle with me, and so what a gentleness does is that it makes us great. And I, and I want to show that because I think this is just really key. Um, and, and, and thankfully, the story didn't actually stop right here with the Samaritan woman. Um, so in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, um, the prophet Isaiah says this about Jesus. And this is this kind of just summing up everything that I've just said. Verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Yeah, that sounds like God. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Yet he will faithfully bring forth justice. You guys see that? God is going to bring forth justice, but yet not break a bruised reed? What does that mean? Who's the bruised reed? Us, the sinners. Justice is condemning sin, is it not? But yet he bruises us. He reveals us, he reveals to us the depths of ourself so that the faintly burning wick we were will be roaring great like a roaring fire. That is the gentleness of God. A justice-filled God that comes lowly to sinners so that we might be able to be a strong and unbreakable reed and a roaring fire that will not be quenched. <laughs> David actually put this to words, right? After he's delivered from Saul, right, in 2 Samuel, he says this about it, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 36. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your natural justice, natural holiness, if you're there, I think, well, yeah. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 36. You have given me the sword of your salvation, and it's not your holiness, not all that, but your gentleness made me great. And he, it's, it's, it's so empowering to, to David that he says it again in Psalm chapter 18, verse 35, talking about the same thing. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me. The justice, the God that is going to bring justice to all nations. And your gentleness made me great. And so when we see Jesus come to the Samaritan woman and her, him being gentle and lowly, what, what, did, what did it do to her? <laughs> well, thankfully, the story actually tells us. I didn't include it because it's kind of farther down. But in John chapter 4, go to verse 39. Mm-hmm. 
John chapter 4, verse 39. And it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Jesus' gentleness brought out her sin. God's heart ran towards it. And it was by that that the woman was able to bring people into Christ. (laughs) So again, we, we saw that David became great in the Old Testament. And we see this woman becoming great because of our God coming lowly, listening, knowing who she is, and responding in truth that, that will impact the depths of her so that she might then be able to go towards the people that I was once ashamed of her, that had ostracized her, looked down on her. Man, that is what Jesus does for us. He bruises us, he doesn't break us. He kindles us and doesn't extinguish us. And this leads into my second last sub-point is that we can now be great to all, right? Jesus' gentleness helps us to be gentle to all. So again, we, we see the application of what Jesus does it to us personally, right? Is that it, it, it spurs us on to be more, it spurs us on to be more like Christ. It spurs us on to see the great things of God. It sees us to behold his love and to embody it now. And again, we, we, we saw the result of it in the Samaritan woman's life where she told everyone in her village about it. So then how are we to now actually practically go and do it? I said a couple of things already, like to listen and to know who you're ministering to, right? We have two ears and one mouth. We should probably use them in that proportion. Someone once wise once told me. But scripture also gives a very clear answer to this as well. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Says this, but we, being Paul, were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8 So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, or in some, in some translations, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So, we see that the way we are gentle is by loving a people so much that we're willing to give our entire lives to them. Yes, being gentle is a conversation, but it's also a mindset. It's also saying, man, I am never going to leave you nor forsake you like Christ does for us. And this is kind of starts playing into the, it's who we are and it's how Jesus is the tone with us, right? Again, Matthew 11, that is who he is, gentle and lowly. But he also approaches us and is the tone of that when we relate to him. So when we experience God's gentleness, and we can now be gentle to others. It's the mindset of, man, I'm going to give you my life. I don't love you. I love you more than just a gospel sharing. I love you more than just a phone call. Because that's what Jesus does for us, right? How many times he's heard so many of my stupid prayers. <laughs> but yet he is with us to the end, and that is how we are now to be to others. So this kind of brings up the question of, okay, so this is how we are to be gentle, is to share our lives with, with, with people, to be gentle with them so that, that we might be able to just share our hearts that, that, man, we are broken and loved 
but that we have a God that, that restores us and makes us loved. Who are we now to do this to? Who are we now to be gentle to? We see how it changes us and how we are now supposed to do it, but, but who is the object of this? Right? Dana Orland, when talking about Jesus' heart and then talking about sinful people, says it like this. It was the joyous anticipation of seeing people made invincibly clean that sent him through his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection. It's the anticipation of seeing people made clean. Today, when sinners partake in his atoning work, coming to Christ for forgiveness, communing with them despite their sinfulness, we are laying hold of Christ's deepest longing and joy. So if Christ's deepest longing and joy is making people whole, is cleansing sin, that means there is no sinner that is too sinful for us to be gentle to. Right? Again, what were the, what were the two requirements of the, of the worshipers of Jesus? Spirit and truth. Spirit of brokenness and the truth that we are loved. So there is no sinner, no sinfulness, no amount of it that we are not to be gentle to. So all people, we are to be gentle to. And here is a list for you. It does not matter if you are sinner or redeemed, saved or unsaved, white, brown, or black, gay, lesbian, straight, or transgender, rich or poor, selfish or unselfish, anxious or steadfast, depressed or purposeful, Catholic or Protestant, Republican or Democrat, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, vaccinated or unvaccinated, drunk or sober, old or young, mentally handicapped or full-functioning, sexually active or virgin, athlete or scrub, married or single, adulterer or faithful, smart or dumb, northern or southern, pro-life or pro-choice, monogamous or polyamorous, harsh or kind, abused or adored, condemned or beloved. All of these things are broken. And all of these are loved by Christ. So therefore, if we are to be gentle, the fruit of the Spirit, to be gentle, that means we are to have the heart of Christ. We are supposed to relate to people like that. To listen to a broken world so that when we hear of these things, it does not matter what category, our heart abounds for those people. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1.8. The not, and, and the depth of knowledge and of insight my prayer for you is that your love will abound so when we see the sinfulness and the brokenness of people like Jesus did with a Samaritan woman our love goes there hmm. so brothers and sisters this is how we can be gentle because Christ was gentle to us now we can be gentle to all broken people so that the gentleness of Christ may be made known in our lives. Let us pray.